If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hosea and the Minor Prophets. It's right after Daniel. Uh, a quick word, maybe a qualification or a defense of myself before we get started. Um, what we're about to read has some pretty offensive material in it. Um, right, there's no other way to put it. Uh, it's, uh, it's heavy stuff. It's difficult stuff. Um, so just be ready. And, uh, but it's in the Bible, so that's my, that's my ticket out. Um, it's my get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, the prophet Hosea is writing to the northern kingdom uh, of Israel in a time in which, similar to uh, the kingdom of Judah that we looked at last week, uh, they are sinning against God. They are wandering far from him. It's before the exile, and he's warning them that that exile is coming. That they're going to be taken off by a foreign enemy and, and dragged off to another country, and it's going to be horrible. It's the worst fate imaginable uh, at that period of time. So let's look at the prophet Hosea uh, as he lays out this metaphor of God and his church, God and his people. Uh, we'll be skipping around between the first three chapters. Uh, for the first part, we're going to be reading partly from chapter 1 and then some from chapter 2, and then we'll, we'll take a break and pray. The word of the Lord, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And then he, they go on. She has two more children, and he names them this. No mercy and not my people. The names of their last two children. Our, our daughter's name is Naomi, which means pleasant. It would be, you know, can you imagine naming your son or daughter? I don't love, come here, I don't love you. Come here, not my people. Come here, knucklehead. Come here, ugly. It is, why would you name your child that? But he's clearly making a point. Jezreel, no mercy, not my people. And then skipping down to chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Let's stop there and look to the Lord. Lord, you give us hard words here. We ask for your help. We ask for your grace. Would you soften our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you unplug our ears? Give us eyes to see. 
that we might not only be hearers of the word, but doers also, that we may see your grace and know it freshly and love you more when we walk out the door than we did when we walked in. We ask this in your name. Amen. Um, The best seat at a wedding. We all love weddings, right? The best seat of the wedding is typically one near the aisle, correct? Why? Because when the doors open at the back of the church, the doors swing open and you see there the bride with her father. And everyone stands up and they turn and look. And you want an aisle seat, right? So that you can see her. That's what it's about. It's her day. Well, uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine said, uh, everybody else is looking at the bride and they think that's the best seat in the house. But my favorite place is to be someplace uh, where I have a view of the groom standing up front. And she said, while everyone else is looking at the, at the bride, it's like I have this private little window into this man who's sweating, uh, dressed far too warmly for a summer day, nervous and thrilled out of his mind. And to see his face when the doors open and he sees his bride for the first time, uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing to look at his face, to see his love, his excitement. Uh, uh, Marriages, weddings in particular are are an ideal thing, are they not? They're an ideal day where the the groom is looking his best. No one shows up on their wedding day uh, with a five o'clock shadow. You don't do that. You comb your hair, you put on a suit, you put on a tux, you look your best, and all your friends are looking their best, and everyone's you know, been to the tanning salon and had their teeth, teeth bleached, and they're looking perfect. Because <laughs> it's a perfect day. It's an ideal. And it should be. Uh, it's a picture of what it ought to be like. And all throughout Scripture, the relationship between God and his people uh, It's painted in different pictures, different images, different metaphors, a a shepherd and his sheep, a father and his children, but a common one as well is is a a groom and his bride, a husband and his wife, Um, a wedding. But clearly, if you were listening at all as we read the scripture, something is very, very wrong with this ideal picture here. Uh, Something is disturbing, offensive. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to see our sin. That's our first point. The sin of God's people, the bride of Christ. Um, And I want to qualify again. I'm not trying to be shocking. I'm not trying to be in your face. Um, I'm simply trying to present a common uh, theme of Scripture that's plain here. So I hope I'm not offending you. Um, But there's a sense in which maybe we ought to be offended. And I want to say that I, too, am a little offended, a little embarrassed when I read this. I remember I went to Covenant College, and at Covenant College we had chapel. Uh, It was required, and it was every day. And so sometimes, of course, it was better than others if you have chapel every day, as you can imagine. And I I remember one week we had uh, a guest musician uh, who came in. He was a one was there were two actually. One was a professional songwriter who had made several uh, CDs and was sort of semi well known. And the other was sort of a guy who had made his own CD and sold it out of the back of his truck. And he was singing. The second guy was singing a song. Um, and he, he introduced the song saying, I think it's good to think about how God feels about us sometimes. So I like to, not just how I love God, but how does God view me? And then he proceeded to sing a song uh, from the perspective of a husband whose wife was cheating on him. Um, and it was fairly detailed. I mean, not, not graphic or gross or 
or crude, but I can remember all of us were sitting around thinking, what in the world is he talking about? People were confused, and after the fact, uh, people were sort of arguing over whether it was right or wrong for him to sing that song, as people tend to do at Covenant College. Um, <laughs> uh, but then finally, a friend of mine, who I was actually at the, at the time taking a class on prophets uh, with, said, you know, hey, guys, it's, it's Hosea. That's what he was singing about. Um, Christ in the church, God and his bride. It's offensive, it's shocking, and I think that part of the reason that it was shocking to all of us and why we thought it was inappropriate for him to sing this song is because we somehow think that our sin is cleaner than this. We don't really want to know uh, just how bad it is, and yet, picture again that day at the wedding when the doors swing open. And you look and you see a bride at the back, but instead of her father on her arm, she is in the arms of another man. Imagine the horror that you would feel as you looked back and saw that, the disgust. You would just want to cover your face and leave. Or imagine that you're the groom looking back. It's unthinkable. And yet in this story, we're not in the audience watching the bride and we're not the groom standing up front with his heart broken. We're the one in the back, the church, God's people, in the arms of another. Let me ask you this. What if we really believed this about ourselves and about each other? Let me ask you if this sounds uh, familiar to you. You're having a long week, a hard week, maybe a hard month. Um, your children are all over the place. You've been so busy with your job and, or with your children that you've barely had time to look your spouse in the eye in the last two weeks, much less have a meaningful conversation or really know how they're doing. Uh, you're sick of your job, and you're wondering, why did I choose to do this? Is this really what God made me to do? I, why do I live in Williamsburg? It's so hot. Have I retired too soon? Is this really how I want to spend the rest of my days on the earth? You're frustrated. And that morning, you're trying to get ready. Things are running late. You're irritated with your wife or with your husband. You sort of snap at each other in the car or at the children, or maybe you just spend it in cold silence all the way here. Um, and you're constantly worried. You're just feeling neurotic. You're exhausted. And you get here, everything's dysfunctional, you walk down the sidewalk, you open the door, a smiling person hands you a bulletin and says, how are you doing? And you say, fine. <laughs> and you? And they say, I'm fine, and you? And then we all shake hands with one another and say, I'm fine, and you, I'm fine, and you, I'm fine, and you, I'm fine, and you. Sure, I'm, I'm fine, F-I-N-E, frustrated, irritable, neurotic, and exhausted, I'm fine. We're all fine. <laughs> We're all doing great. Now, of course, there's a certain uh, language game that we play. How are you doing? How's it going in the South? Uh, of course, doesn't actually mean how are you doing. It means, you know, hello, right? Um, but what if we really believe that we weren't fine? How would that change the way we treat each other, the way we present ourselves to others? Not, of course, that we would be rude, but that we would be willing to be a little socially awkward. 
I'm having a hard day. I just snapped at my wife. And I'm feeling kind of guilty about it. Do you really believe that you're the bride in the back with the wrong man? And do you believe that the other people in the room are the same way? And how would that change the way we view each other? How would that change the way we relate to the world who watches us and who comes in and who we go out to? And how would that change the way they view us if we began to view ourselves that way as broken, unclean people? I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to get a light, write a letter home that said the, the visiting RUF minister called us all prostitutes. Brandon, don't ever let him get in your pulpit again. <laughs> but there's good news here. And the good news is that until we really see our sin as it is, as spiritual adultery, spiritual prostitution, betrayal of our true husband, as horrific as that is, until we see that, we'll never see his love for what it really is. So our second point, not just our sin, but Christ's love. Look at verse uh, 6 of chapter 2. In response to the, the adultery of God's people, God says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. She shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Throughout today's worship service, both in our prayer and in some of the songs that we have sung, there's been a thread of, of the discipline of God, the loving discipline of God. And here we see the love of Christ for his bride and that he cuts off those other lovers. Those things that she has deceptively clung to because she said in verse 5, she says, I will go after other lovers who will give me my bread and my water, my, full and my, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Verse 8, God says, She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. What is it that you're clinging to that you think is your source of blessing? Sometimes that could be an overt clear, obvious, breaking of a commandment, sin. It could literally be adultery or some form of it where you think that in going to that it's going to fulfill you, but in fact it's killing you. It could be something good and normal and right, like money, like a secure job, like a, a loving family that's great, and yet somehow we've taken it and we fail to see that it is God who is the one who gives the blessing and we have invested ourselves so much so. And God says, I love you so much that my disciplining hand, that fire of a furnace to remove the dross, I'm going to put that on you. The heat, the knife, to cut these things off. Why? Because I'm, he's essentially pulling that other lover out of your arms and saying, no, he will kill you. It's me. I love you. He cuts things off that are destroying her. But more than that, verses four, verse 14, this is unbelievable. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards 
and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. He doesn't just cut things off. He woos her back. He comes after her in love. He says, I will take her into the wilderness and allure her. He says, I'm going to win you back with my love. And that picture of being taken out into the wilderness, he's not, he's not saying I'm going to take you out into the desert in the disciplinary sense. He's, he's recalling the exodus. When God's people were first brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and there they were in the wilderness, in the desert. And he was with them in the pillar of fire and cloud. And he spoke to them and he gave them his law. He's essentially saying, I'm going to take you back to where we went on our honeymoon. We're going to go back there. And you're going to remember me. You're going to know me. You're going to remember my redemption for you. That is the love of Christ for his people. Um, This is an outrageous concept. It's so outrageous that commentators um, actually disagree, I would argue, with the text. I looked at several commentators, the most famous of which being John Calvin, who looked at the opening verses of this and saw the pursuing love of, of the actual historical Hosea for his prostitute wife, Gomer, and they concluded, well, she wasn't a prostitute when he married her. And the basic logic was, because God just wouldn't ask a prophet to do that. I saw one commentator who actually made a grammatical argument, but even then it was, it was sort of an obscure, strange, very awkward reading of the very plain reading of the text, and that's that Gomer was a prostitute when Hosea married her. Why? Because it's hard for us to imagine this. It's hard for us to find an illustration that would even come close to this sort of love. Who would be willing to do that? But that's the whole point. The whole point is not just that we're that filthy, but that Christ loves us that much. Um, My pastor in college, his name is Joe, and his wife's name is Barb, and he tells a story of uh, when he first decided to marry her. And um, they had a date, and he had to cancel that date because his mother told him to. They were uh, high school sweethearts, actually even in junior high. Um, but they, they had scheduled a date, and something drastically wrong had happened at his house, and the sewage, the septic tank, had backed up, and his basement had 18 inches of raw sewage. And uh, he was dressed up for his date. His mother said, you're not going anywhere. Opened the basement door. He knew immediately something was drastically wrong. He called Barb and said, I'm so sorry. We're, we're going to have to postpone, you know, disaster. i got to clean this up and clean it up now. Got in his work clothes, went downstairs. About 15 minutes of standing in that unthinkable stench and filth, he looks up at the top of the stairs of the basement and sees cut-off shorts and little legs down the stairs. He looks, and there's Barb. She says, give me a bucket. He said, what? She said, give me a bucket. I'm here to help into the sewage, 
And he said, at that moment, he, he said, literally, it, this is what happened. He muttered under his breath. He turned to pick up the bucket and said, I'm going to marry this girl. <laughs> and handed it to her. Why was he so irresistibly drawn to her? Because he knew girls who wanted to be around him when he looked nice and when he played his guitar and sang, but he had never known anyone in his entire life who wanted to be around him, who wanted to serve him, who wanted to love him and go down and be with him when it stinks, when he's filthy, when it's gross. And that's the picture of Jesus loving his church. Where he enters, as, even though we don't even want to believe that we're that filthy, he goes down. He comes down to be where we are. Skip over to chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, that's Hosea, chapter 3, verse 1, Go again. She's cheated on him, she's left him again. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Hosea, the rightful husband of Gomer, finds her after she has fled from him again and pays for her. He buys her back. She who is already rightfully his, he buys her. I can't think of anything like this. And I would challenge you to find any person, any philosophy, any religion that says anything quite like what Christianity is saying here. Every other philosophy or religion that I know of, and I'm not a scholar on all of them, so correct me if I'm wrong, but every single one of them at some point says basically this, there's something that you have to do. Follow the rules in some sort of way. And then God will accept you. But the Christian gospel says, you are unacceptable, but God comes after you. It's a profound love. No matter how dirty, no matter how filthy, he goes and buys her back. And Christ buys his church, not just with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic, whatever that is, of barley. But he buys her back with his own blood. He redeems we see our sin, we see Christ's love, and then finally we see our restoration. Skip back to chapter 2. The story continues, and he continues to make promises. Starting at verse 17 of chapter 2. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and remember the names of the children. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The love of Christ comes to us in our worst, but not just to leave us there, but to transform it's not just a wedding day, it's a marriage. 
He loves us enough to, to transform us, to restore us, to wait, make us the way it was meant to be. Look at these uh, verses, verse 18. He says, I will make for them a covenant on that day. Notice the language. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And he says he's going to put an end to war. But what does that remind you of? Beasts, birds, creeping things of the ground. It's an echo back to Genesis 1 of creation the way it was supposed to be in the first place. It's a picture of the coming of the kingdom, of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's saying, I'm going to make you my wife, and I'm going to make you like this, the way it was meant to be. And then the, the, the language of war, of bow and sword and death, what follows immediately in Genesis after sin enters the world, Cain and Abel, murder, death. He's saying, I'm undoing it all. I'm fixing it back the way it's supposed to be. I am washing my bride, sanctifying her, as it says in Ephesians 5, to make her an agent of transformation and change in the world until ultimately Christ brings it at the consummation. Because right now we live in sort of a not yet time where some of this doesn't quite happen the way it's supposed to. We have a little bit, we have a little already, a little taste of this in the moment. And the kingdom comes and comes and comes and comes and ultimately it will and all this will come true and be fixed. As it says in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Forever you'll be with the Lord. If you have salvation, that salvation is secure in him. It's not just a wedding, it's a marriage. A couple years ago, um, a friend of, of mine and of, of Dawn's named Ella uh, got married. And Ella was, a, um, she went to the University of Tennessee, was involved in RUF there and was an RUF intern for a few years, and she was, she was the person, she was the girl who thought she was an old maid when she was 20. You know, I'm never going to get married, and she was fretting about that at 22 um, pretty seriously. But a couple of years ago, she got married, and Dawn was talking to her on the phone, and Ella had this brilliant-slash-incredibly-stupid idea for her wedding. And it's, uh, you'll know why it's incredibly stupid in a moment. Um, but I say it's brilliant because it's the kind of idea that you get when you really understand the gospel. See, she said, on my wedding day, I want my husband or groom-to-be, Virgil was his name. She said, instead of having my father walk me down the aisle, that's, where, that's why it's a dumb idea. Don't ever do this, any of you young girls who are hearing this story. <laughs> instead of me walking down to him, I want Virgil to walk down the aisle and get me. And I don't just want him to walk me back down the aisle. He's going to pick me up and carry me. They didn't do it because she loves her daddy and he loves her. But it's the kind of brilliant idea because Ella really understood what it meant for Jesus to love her. She said, I want my wedding to be a picture of the gospel. And if I walk to him, it's not a picture of the gospel anymore. He comes after me. And he brings me to the altar. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful idea. And I say it to you now. She's, she's saying, seeing it right here in Hosea. You're in the foyer. Let go of the other lover in your arms and see your groom coming after you. That is the love of Jesus for you. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we ask that you would give us soft hearts that are quick to repent and turn to you. Lord, teach us to let go of sin that entangles us and grasp on to the hand of Jesus. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the cross, which is our only hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing of the love of Jesus.